Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 90, 90. I was saying to Zach, after I saw him practicing that song, that last one we did, that's my sermon. That song, the lyrics that you heard, that's my sermon right there. I mean, wow, what a God thing, huh? Dare I say predestined. <laughs> well, yes, turn in your so uh, Bibles to Psalm 90. We're continuing our uh, uh, series through the Psalms this summer. <clears throat> and I'm Chris Risk, and I'm filling in for Pastor Mike McDonald. Your Bible should say uh, at the beginning of this psalm that it's a prayer of Moses, the man of God. So that would make this psalm probably the oldest one in the, in the whole book of Psalms. And what you want to do is keep that picture, the exodus and the wilderness travels as you read this, uh, as you read this psalm as we go through it. It can be read very easily as a sad psalm. It talks about humanity's frailties, but also about God's eternal power. And I hope you don't think that when you became a Christian, I hope nobody told you that if you come to Christ, life will always be easy and it will always be happy and you're never going to have any sadness or any sickness or anything like that. Please remember that the Bible never told us any of that. The psalm has some hard lessons to have. But first, let's pray. Thank you so much, Lord, for being here with us. We just beg you to teach us with your Holy Spirit what you would have us know. Teach us the things that you want us to do, what you want us to know. Teach us to number our days. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> okay, so like it says... This is a prayer of Moses, and Moses actually wrote several songs that are in the Bible, but this is the only one that's actually in the book of Psalms, and it's a very good one for frail human beings. Do you know any frail human beings? We live in a world that says that success means being rich, like my mirth is not in what I own. I mean, on and on, it's going to be, it's eerie, it's creepy. We live in a world that says we're always supposed to be successful, that we're always supposed to be healthy. And if you're not, then there's something that must be wrong with your faith. Watch out for faith healers who are wearing glasses. And also watch out for people who tell you that you're always supposed to be happy and peppy and that you're never to question God and you're never to be sad or hurting. We're wondering why God is allowing to you to go through this or that. You are allowed to feel that way. Anybody who says different has never read the Bible, especially the book of Psalms. Because if you read through the book of Psalms, you'll see how a real pro vents their frustration at God. The Psalms are full of some straight talk and some tough love and some real crying out to God until your throat is sore. Psalm 90 talks about some very dark things. It's true, they're true because we live in a fallen world. And a fallen world has death, and it has grief, and it has sickness, and it has loss. And God does not always shield us from that. He teaches us with it. What does he teach us? Well, first of all, he teaches us that we are travelers, and God is our home. Verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all our generations. So the first lesson we hear is that God is our home. Our home is in God. 
Moses starts out with a word that we have a home. Here's a guy who had to lead people through the wilderness and lived all their lives in tents. You ever lived in a tent? I have. I don't mean camp out in a tent. I mean live in that thing. It can be depressing because it's temporary. And what you want is a home. Moses says we have a home. We have always had a home. Lord, you have been our dwelling place. How do you keep the Lord your dwelling place? I did 23 years in the Air Force and I moved 10 times. Seven times with a wife and kids. Living in hotels and base housing that I didn't own. In a dorm or a tent when I was deployed. The tabernacle moved with the children of Israel. Or should I say that wherever that tabernacle moved, the children of Israel would go with it. And he was always with them everywhere they went. Pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. Keep that idea with you everywhere you go. Dwell there. Because second, our home is permanent. Verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you would form the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Our home is eternal because our God is eternal. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Moving around a desert and living in a place that isn't solid or reliable or trustworthy will break your heart over and over. When am I going to be home? There are people, maybe sitting here now, who have a question like that every time you wake up in the morning. When will I be home? It's a crazy thing to realize that the closer you get to God, the less you think of anything around here as being home. Sanctification seems to come with it, a dissatisfaction with this world being as a home. I mean, that's biblical. I could show you on and on where the Bible says that that's healthy, actually. Hebrews eleven sixteen says, But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city, a hometown. The thing we need to understand is that this homesickness that we feel is good. It's a longing that God is going to fill. But still, we sometimes, we lose heart over it. God knows. It's a sad situation. Moses wrote this next part to show just how sad the whole thing is. God knows. But we are disciples, and God is our teacher. Whenever I'm asked if I want the good news or the bad news first, I always say I want the bad news first. That's just me. We have some tough lessons to learn. And they're lessons we learn throughout our whole life. You've heard it before. Well, you need to learn that life's not a picnic. And that's assuming that you think a picnic is fun. <laughs> For those of you that left the Memorial Day picnic before the seventh plague of Egypt fell on us with hail, there we all, we're all underneath that awning out there getting rained on by hail. I guess life is like a picnic. There's some hard lessons to learn. Lesson number one, you're going to die. Verse three, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. Have you ever heard this kind of vocabulary before? Because it's straight out of Genesis chapter three. Verse 19, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. It's part of the fall. People die 
All creation dies. Animals, plants, even stars die and go black. They return to dust and carbon. It's part of the curse. It says God will return us to dust, and that's his decree. The quotation marks are God saying that, return, O children of man. That's the will of God. It's his design for a fallen creation. Returning it back to the beginning, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We are finite, but God is eternal. Verse 4, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or watch in the night. The context is clear. He's talking about the contrast between finite humans and eternal God. A thousand years. A thousand years ago, the first crusade hadn't even happened yet. A thousand years ago, Richard the Lionheart wouldn't even be born for another hundred years. And a thousand years is nothing in the eternal time of God. A watch in the night. A watch in the night was a four-hour shift. To God, that passes as quick as a thousand years. You get the idea? You and I are here and gone so quickly. Lesson two is dying is part of the fallen creation. Verse five, you sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. Moses lived for 80 years out in the desert. He gives three pictures of how finite we are. And the first is a flood. You sweep them away as with a flood. I stood up here a few weeks ago and I, and I told you about how in the Middle East they have dry riverbeds like arroyos here. Wipe you away fast, powerful. That's what Moses is talking about in Psalm 90. We are here and swept away. Our footprints aren't even around anymore. Next is a dream. They are like a dream. Isn't it true that most of the dreams that we have we forget after we're up for the day? I mean, you might remember them first thing in the morning, but I mean, as the time goes, as the day goes by, you don't remember what you dreamed last night. Most of us are here and gone, and within a couple decades, nobody will remember we were here. Close family will remember you, grandchildren, but I mean, in the grand scheme of things, we won't be remembered. We were like a dream that gets forgotten before lunchtime. And the third picture is grass. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. In the desert they would have grass that would pop up from the morning dew. I mean, you remember Jesus' parable about the sower. How some seed fell on shallow ground and the sun burned it up as soon as it came up. We pop up for just a small amount of time and then we fade and wither. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. Some, some new grass comes up and replaces us. 200 years ago, this whole planet was inhabited by people we never met, but their time was up. And then we came along, and someday we'll be replaced by people we never met, by grass that is renewed in the morning. Moses says, is saying that it's the way of things. Forty years Moses lived herding sheep that didn't even belong to him. They were his father-in-laws. And another 40 years spent herding people who wouldn't listen to him. Forty years of watching people die and die and die. Why did they die? Well, lesson three, the creation has fallen because of sin. Verse seven, for we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. You know the story. These people were stubborn. 
They had the chance to go into the promised land, but they refused to believe that this God, who had, they had just seen split the Red Sea, who they had seen provide them with manna every morning to eat, who had struck down the false gods of Egypt, now suddenly didn't have the power to fight the giants that walked in the land of Canaan. That's a sin. You've seen him deliver you from people who wanted you dead, who people who wanted you to fail. And he has fed you and clothed you and saved your soul. And then for some reason, all of us start to doubt he can feed me or clothe me or deliver me. After all, Lord, how can you give me living water? You don't even have a bucket to get the water with. And we have the gall to be dismayed by that. By your wrath, we are dismayed. What are you so mad about, Lord? I'm a good person. Why are you so angry? You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. He sees you. He sees all of us. The private people we are inside, the people we hate, the people we talk about, who we lust for, how many times we've known the way he wanted us to live, give in to him and surrender and trust him, but we basically shut him off. Like ghosting someone, you know what I mean? They're texting you and texting you and texting you and wanting you to reply back and you see these texts and you just put the phone back in your pocket. How many times do we do that to the Holy Spirit? Well, we're busy. We got stuff to do. And that's how we live our lives. But we could be stronger. We could be at peace. We could have some more joy. But it's not that way for a lot of us. Verse 9, for all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. Why a sigh? The word means moaning or groaning. Why would we sigh like that at the end? Only regret makes you sigh like that at the end of your life. Regret, regret for what? That we didn't live it up more? That we didn't party more? That we never bungee jumped? People don't sigh like that at the end of their life, that they, drank, did, that they never drank more tequila, or that they didn't argue with people online more often. Nobody's in hospice care on their deathbed and saying, I wish I'd watched more Netflix. <laughs> we sigh like that because it could have been better. We sigh like that because at the end of our life, we have family that won't talk to us anymore. We sigh like that because we grew up all our lives in church and now here at the end, we have this awful feeling that we don't really know Jesus at all. We sigh because we're out of time and now we would love to have just one year back. Just one. Verse 10, the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble they are gone, and we fly away. But living a long time is not the goal. I can show you a lot of people that lived a very long time. Genesis 47, verse 9, has Jacob saying, the, year, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. Living a long time is not what it's all about. Moses lived to be 120 and that was a miracle, really. I mean, Moses uh, was used by God to do a lot of miracles, but the rest of us don't get that long, and the rest of us don't want that long. 
I had a great uncle, Uncle Bill. He was the one World War II veteran in the family. Uncle Bill made it to 103. And in his case, 103 was not a lot of fun. He wasn't in pain or anything, but you got the impression that he just didn't want to do it anymore. For those of you who are octogenarians in your 80s or more, you've seen a lot of friends and family die. Moses was 120 and he saw a lot of people die. Trust me when I tell you this, the book of Numbers is about numbers. And you can take the numbers of the people that came out of Egypt in the Exodus and the numbers of the people that finally made it 40 years later into the promised land. And just trust me when I tell you this. It's been estimated that 1.2 million people died out there in that desert over the 40 years. That's 30,000 a year, 82 a day. And that average factors in the couple thousand that God would smite in one time. Moses saw a lot of dead bodies, and a lot of those people ended their days with a sigh. Verse 11, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Who really considers how angry God is at sin? We don't think we're so bad, and that's because we really don't understand how holy God is. I can read to you, if you read the Bible from cover to cover, you will find many people who saw the glory of the, God, of the Lord God in person. I'm talking about Abraham and Moses and Joshua and Ezekiel and Daniel and Peter and John, on and on, people who had seen the glory of God, and every single last one of them hit the dirt on their faces. We just don't get it. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? If we did, all of us would stop being dismayed about what a good person I am. So I told you that I'm get the bad news first. You're going to die. You're going to rot and go back to powder. You're going to die because the whole creation has fallen, and it's fallen because of rebellion against a holy God. Someday when you get to meet Moses in glory... And you will. There'll be plenty of time. You'll get to meet Moses. You can walk up to him and you say, Moses, Psalm 90 was the worst pep talk I ever heard. You're supposed to be peppy. Psalms are supposed to lift me up. And probably what he'll say to you, did you read all of it? <laughs> all of it? Yeah, go on. Verse 12, so, stop right there. So, because of this, because we're going to die, because we're going to rot and go back to powder, because we're going to die because this whole creation has fallen and it's fallen because of rebellion against a holy God, so, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Number our days. The word in Hebrew for number here means to count. It also means to allocate, to budget. And notice it's not number or budget our years, it's budget our days. Because that's where we live, isn't it? It's the day-to-day, -day, and it's insidious in how it's the days that we mismanage. When we're young, the days fly by. When we're older, they, uh, they fly by, and before you know it, our, uh, 
when we're, sorry, when we're young, the days drag by. When we're older, they fly by, and before we know it, we've, our kids are all grown, and we have friends and family that have died, and we end with a sigh because, man, that went by fast. My daughter turned 33 weeks ago. My son will be 28 in September. I remember the days that both of them were born. I remember what car we had. I remember the room that Becky was in in the labor and delivery. I remember when our daughter was born, what was on in the room was the young and the restless. That's what Becky wanted to watch. I'm giving her ice chips and rubbing her back. Watching the young and the restless. I remember when my daughter refused to hold my hand the first time. Hold daddy's hand, nope. She'll be, she turned 30 three weeks ago. Man, that went by fast. If there's one thing I've learned as I've grown older, it's not the hard times that'll knock chips in your faith. It's not the storms, it's the day-to-day. Especially if the day-to-day has nothing to really fight for. I mean, hard times will just make you run to Jesus. Remember, we went through Job two years ago. The final answer was, if you crush and bruise and beat a true child of God down, he'll just praise their God even more. That's not what your enemy wants. He wants you lazy. He wants you content with this world. He wants you out of shape. The mountain of transfiguration is great. The glory of the Lord up there on the top, and we would love to build three little tiny homes up there and live there, but you can't. We have to come down into the valley where there's demons and unbelief. Teach us to number our days, budget our days, number our days and put them aside for important things. Family, of course, but time for God too, especially when life is going good. Prayer time, study time, fellowship time, and that's hard for a lot of us. Notice that this part is the psalm is a prayer. Teach us to number our days. He's asking God to teach him. We need to be taught this because it doesn't come easy because we grew up in this world and it's the only world we've ever known. But you try to rely on this system to fulfill you and save you and make you happy and it will always let you down. 1 John 2, 15 to 17, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And we have to pray to be taught not to love it. Feeling like this world is not your home is actually healthy because you're not home yet. And this, this shack, this tent that we're living in right now, it's going to pass away. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. You see, we are believers, and the future is our friend. Look at verse 13. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Remember verse 3? Go back up to the top of uh, Psalm 90 and read verse 3. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. Now it's return, O Lord. We're not left in death and sorrow and decay. Psalm 103 tells us, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Jesus knows what it's like to live here. 
He lived in the flesh for 33 years, and he hears us ask the question, how long? How long does this go on and on and on? How is the future, my friend? Well, first of all, God wants us to have joy. Verse 14, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. How can you have joy? Joy isn't necessarily happiness, you know. You can have a life that isn't filled with happiness, but you can't have joy. What does that even mean? Well, I have to go here. I have to say that John Piper wrote a book called Desiring God, and he answered the question, I think, beautifully. He coined a phrase. It's called Christian hedonism. Now, hedonism is a word that usually means living only for yourself. You care only about satisfying your own desires. Well, what if your main desire in your whole life was to be profoundly satisfied in God? Piper has always been a big friend of, uh, a fan of uh, Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was a pastor and a theologian in New England in the 1700s. Prolific writer. And Edwards, uh, uh, Piper quotes Edwards saying this. God made the world that he might communicate and the creature receive his glory, but that it might be received both by the mind and the heart. He that testifies his having an idea of God's glory doesn't glorify God so much as he that testifies also his delight in it. Piper has said the great goal of all Edwards' work was the glory of God, and the greatest thing I have ever learned from Edwards is that God is glorified most not merely in being known, not merely being dutifully obeyed, but by being enjoyed in the knowing and the obeying. The first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And Piper suggests it can be read, man's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. We hear many sermons every year about obeying God, about working for God, about worshiping God, all that, every single word of it can be done and accomplished if we just kept the greatest commandment of them all in our hearts. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Then you would easily obey him. You would easily worship him. What's more, you would be satisfied in him. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. Why? What will that get us? That we may rejoice and be glad all our days. And as we've already said throughout this psalm, our days are few. The future is your friend. Before the lower kingdom of Judah was exiled to Babylon, God sent Jeremiah to say something to them. And here's what he said. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Jeremiah 29, 13. If they would seek him, he could be found. Love God and he will never disappoint me. Point you. How do I do that? God has always been kind of an idea for me. If I'm really honest, I gotta say that even though I know I'm saved, I don't really know God like I should. I'll give you give you some help. Would you like to have an image in your mind, a goal to look at while you're running the race through life? 
Father has sent one. John 14, 8 and 9, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? We are never allowed to make an image of God to worship or to bow down to, but the Father has sent us an image to look to, and he has sent Jesus, who is God the Son. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Colossians 1, 15 and 16. If you want a goal, if you want a destination to seek for, it is Jesus himself. This is all through the Bible. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before him, before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We are to seek with all our might, but we are not seeking a philosophy or enlightenment or being a good person. We are not even seeking a religion. We are seeking a person, Jesus himself. He is who we're looking for. Why would we need to look for him? You've heard people say, I found Jesus. <laughs> Why was he hiding? Why would I need to do that? Why am I supposed to seek him? Well, probably to see how serious you are. Not to him, but to you. If you read the New Testament all the way through, you'll find some pretty odd things that Jesus used to do. Odd from our point of view. People would come up to Jesus all the time and they'd say, I'd follow, I'll follow you. And Jesus would say things that would just turn them off. I mean, you want to follow me? Okay, give all your money to the poor. That's not how we would handle that. Lord, that's a rich guy. We want him in. That's what Jesus would say to him. Another guy would say, uh, Jesus told him to leave his parents. One guy said, I'll follow you. And Jesus said, okay, I'm homeless. You still want to follow me? It's crazy from a 21st century marketing point of view. We're supposed to tell people that life will be easy if they come to Christ. You'll feel better. You still want to follow him? Some, Jesus told his disciples that they would be dragged into synagogues and beaten. John chapter 6 tells us that a whole lot of people said, forget that, and they just left. But the people who were his sheep, those that were his sheep, they stayed. After all, they don't know the voice of a stranger. Peter said, where else are we going to go? You want to be satisfied in him? You want to rejoice and be glad all your days? He wants that for you too. And he says for you to follow him. Jesus used to do things to prove their faith was real. Show me your faith without works and I'll show you my faith by my works. He would put mud on a guy's eyes and he would say, go wash it off. What would you do? Well, I'd take a swing at him for putting spit on my face. Or would you go wash the mud off? Somebody would come and say, my servant needs to be healed. And Jesus would say, okay, he's healed. 
Would you stand there and argue with them? No, I really need you to come with me and wave your hands and say the words. Or would you believe him and turn around and walk back home? Jesus would heal a guy and he'd say, okay, I want you to pick up your bed and I want you to walk out of here. So the guy picks up his little cot that he's got right there and he's walking out and the Pharisees would say, hey, it's the Sabbath. You're not supposed to be carrying stuff on the Sabbath. What's the answer? The guy who healed me and raised me up from the ground told me to do this. He has told us, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. We seek, we try, we pray, we study, we listen to solid teaching and we seek his face. Philippians 3, 13 and 14, brothers, I do not consider that I made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize and the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We do that because we love him and we're out to get something. We are out to win the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We are out to get joy when we delight in him. We are in it for ourselves. We are in it for the hedonistic, selfish goal of being profoundly joyful when all our desires are filled in him. And another thing, God wants us to find our joy in him. Verse 15, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Afflicted us. The word means humbled kept us down, kept us from rising higher than we wanted to be. I don't know, maybe you could have been richer than you are now. Maybe you could have been more famous. Maybe you could have been higher up in life. Here we are. God put us here, and who knows why. Proverbs 30, 8 and 9 says, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. He knows how to raise us up, and he knows the right way to keep us from being spoiled. I mean, I don't think that's so hard to accept. Think of a millionaire who doesn't want their children to know they're rich. Why would he do that? So they'll learn value. So they'll learn respect for other people. So they'll learn a work ethic. God doesn't just want us to see the benefits of being his child. He wants us to appreciate his work and his power. Verse 16, let your work be shown to your children and your glorious power to their children. God is moving in this world. He is Lord. If all this talk of death and affliction and growing old and wearing out is too dark to handle, then ask God to show you his work and his glorious power to you, his servant, and more importantly, his child. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Jesus said it like this. He said, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. John 15, 15, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. God is working in power and might outside this building. And he's been gracious enough to let us be included in that. God has built three new wells for water over in western India. 
and he's been gracious enough to let us be included in that work. God is expanding and equipping rivers of mercy in Juarez, and he has been including us in that work. Ask for it to be shown to you. God is building, uh, rebuilding a radio station in Window Rock that's preaching the gospel in Navajo to the four corners. And soon, God willing, I don't think it's a secret, they hope to acquire two more stations that will broadcast the gospel in Hopi and one in Chama that will be broadcasting in Apache. And we can be in on what God is doing. Ask for him to show you his glorious work. Seek for it. And your days will not end with a sigh. That's how you budget your days. That's how you number your days. That's what you fill your time with. Because you see, God wants our lives to have meaning. Verse 17, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The favor of the Lord is the approval of the Lord. I mean, we, you want him to smile on you. You really do. You want him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. So what are you talking about? You're talking about giving more money? You're talking about working in a soup kitchen? Well, if your job is to work in a soup kitchen, then yeah. But really, it means what it says right here. Establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. He's talking about finding favor in the work that you do, whatever it is that you do, wherever you do it. Remember how this psalm started. Back in verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all our generations. The Lord's your dwelling place. Wherever you are, there God is. Moses went out to talk with God every day in a tent that moved wherever God wanted it to be. If God is your dwelling place, then God is with you wherever you go. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? Turn to Colossians chapter 3. Every, you can keep your thumb in uh, Psalm 90, but turn to Colossians chapter 3. I remember when COVID started and we weren't able to come into the building and you had some, some people that absolutely didn't get it. They would kind of laugh at us and say, you know, you don't need to be in a church to pray. And we would go, well, duh, we know that. I mean, you do know that uh, this building is not the church. You are the church. The building is not. This is what, what we're doing here is assembling. The word in the Bible for church is ecclesia. In Spanish, they get the word iglesias from it. I mean, it means, kaleo means to call. Ecaleo means called out. And the word means called out to assemble. The Senate in Athens used to be called the ecclesia. We are the assembly. We assemble. And the thing that we assemble here is because, well, they have seating for us and it's big enough. We have air conditioning and parking. But it's not because the cinder blocks and the carpeting are holy or anything. I mean, we are the assembly. If we assembled out in the parking lot, we would still be Faith Church. It says Faith Church on the wall out there, but you understand that you are Faith Church, not the building. No matter where we go, if we met in Walmart, we would be Faith Church. He is our dwelling place. So wherever we go in word or deed, everything we do, we are with him. Here, let me. 
Colossians chapter 3. Bond servants, or no, Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is what Moses is talking about in Psalm 90. Establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Colossians goes on, go down to verse 22, bond servants. You can read that as employees for 21st century people. Obey everything... Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. You are serving the Lord Christ. Where? In a soup kitchen? In children's ministry? Hauling firewood to Navajos? Well, yeah, but the context really here is that you are serving the Lord Christ in your job, in your home. God is your dwelling place, right? So every, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You work for Jesus, period, dot. You are contracted out to whatever you do for a living. How you doing? Do you do good work for him? Look again at verse 24. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Do you understand that you will be rewarded for the work that you do at your job? Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Now go back to Psalm 90. There is no secular in your life anymore. You work for him everywhere you go. Psalm 90, verse 17, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Does he find favor? And what you do, what kind of performance report would he give you? And I'm talking about your job. Do you do good work for him? Who here's been to Lancaster County, Pennsylvania? Anybody? Oh, great. Well, if you've been to Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, you know that you have to drive really slow on the roads around there because there's a lot of horse and buggies out on the roads. That's where the Amish took root in the United States. People would come from all over the world to buy a rocking chair from an Amish store in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. These rocking chairs are made solid, solid oak, made to last. You could hand them down to your great-great-grandkids. Now, why would the Amish make a rocking chair built to last for 100 years? Was it because they could get top dollar for making a great rocking chair? It's because making a chair was an act of worship. It's possible to make selling shoes an act of worship, pouring a sidewalk an act of worship, flipping burgers as an act of worship, cleaning the kitchen as an act of worship, establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. You got one job, Christian, one, and that's to be conformed to the image of Christ. And Jesus was a carpenter. 
Jesus washed feet. Jesus humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. Would you stand, please? We're not going to have a closing song today. So what I want to do is I want to remind you of how we started the service here when Steve read from Ecclesiastes. I do know who the birds are, and I'm going to read the whole thing, starting from verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to plant, uh, build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, and a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. And that's the same thing Psalm 90 is telling us too. Let's pray.